I decided to go a little further back in Scranton's notorious past. This time, over a century ago, when Italian immigrants, particularly Southern Italians and Sicilians, were coming to the U.S. in waves. Starting in the early 1880s and continuing until 1924, over 4 million Italians made the trek. The peak came between 1900 to 1910 when over half of the total immigrated, leaving the poverty-stricken regions of Italy for the land of opportunity. The city of Scranton and Lackawanna County is very well known for their Irish roots, as showcased by the city's St. Patrick's Day Parade. But did you know that according to the 2015 Census Bureau data, those that claim Italian heritage make up the largest population in the county, with the Irish, Polish, and Germans not far behind? Over 20% of Lackawanna County residents claim an Italian heritage, with the boroughs of Dunmore and Old Forge each claiming around 38% Italian. Scranton's Bull's Head section is located in North Scranton, with the intersection of Providence Road and Main Avenue acting as the center point of the neighborhood. It was known as an Italian colony in these early years of immigration. My Italian grandparents moved to that section of the city in the 1960s, much later than these events, but I'm left to wonder if there was a connection to other Italians in the area. Bull's Head was full of hard-working, law-abiding citizens, but this story covers the violence that occurred in the area, including a feud between Italian families that rivaled the Hatfields versus McCoys. A few of the articles went on to mention that these types of family fights were common in Tennessee, West Virginia, and Virginia but are rare in this area. Most of these attacks were directly linked to the infamous Black Hand Society. If they weren't linked, it's likely they were influenced by the violent gangs that would extort money from fellow Italian immigrants. While it's certain that the Black Hand was at work earlier, the society's first mention in the Scranton newspapers was in 1904. That's when an article appeared detailing the society's work in Buffalo's Italian community. Shortly after, another article appeared about a kidnapping by the Black Hand in New York City. Then just two weeks later, another outlining the Black Hand's work in Athens, Pennsylvania. Within the next month, there were articles mentioning Black Hand incidents in cities and towns all over the Northeast, including Boston, Pittsburgh, Utica, and White Plains. It's no wonder the Black Hand became recognized in Scranton shortly after. The society was the early mafia. A group of men banded together to extort money from other Italian immigrants. They started by targeting the wealthy, but by the time it grew, they would target anyone they felt they could coerce into paying them, even if it was just a few cents or dollars per week or month. The Black Hand would usually send the message via a letter that would outline the amount and the date the money was due. They would include an outline of a Black Hand, hence the name. Black Hand wasn't just an Italian thing. Many other countries and their population used the term as well. Typical Black Hand Letter To join, the men would take the following oath. Violence among the Italians in the Bull's Head section predates the Black Hand's arrival in the U.S., at least its known arrival. The violence dates back at least to an incident on March 9, 1889, when Carlo Grand stabbed Antonio Pandolf to death after a night of drinking at a boarding house. Grand was ordered to pay a $100 fine plus court costs and serve eight years in the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. That incident began a trend of Italian-on-Italian attacks in this tiny area of Scranton and the rise of the Black Hand Society in 1905. Christmas celebration turned deadly. December 24, 1905. Nicholas Ferias of Carbondale is shot dead by Severio Curcio, 19. Ferias and Curcio, both coal miners and allegedly members of the Black Hand Society, were attending a Christmas party at the home of Antonia Caprella on Summit Avenue, now Sumner, in Bull's Head. An argument escalated, and Ferias left the home. Curcio followed him out of the house and immediately fired a shot into Ferias. Ferias fell to the ground and begged for his life, but Curcio unload his weapon into the already injured man. 
Curcio calmly walked away from the scene and the stunned witnesses. Soon, the people began to chase Curcio as he headed for the railroad tracks. He turned and trained the gun on those giving chase, and they backed off. Curcio made his way to Glen Leone, Pa where he tried to hide. A couple of days later, he became curious about the condition of Farias, unaware that he had killed him, so he sent a man to the city to see check on the status. The man showed up at the home of the incident and was questioned by the patrolman who was surveilling the home. Ultimately, the man turned in Curcio by giving the police's location. Curcio had come to the city from Pittsburgh, where it was believed he had killed someone there as well. Just two weeks earlier, he was involved in a fight that resulted in Curcio receiving a stab wound in his shoulder. His defense, in this case, was that Farias was part of the Black Hand and tried to extort money from him several times, even threatening to kill him earlier in the day if a certain amount was not paid. The jury was not convinced and found Curcio guilty of first-degree murder in June 1906. An appeal brought a new trial, and he was again convicted of first-degree murder in February 1907. With each verdict, Curcio was said to be in wailing in tears, afraid of what was to come. He was set to be executed on Sept. 5, 1907, but a reprieve extended the date. Then, on November 21, 1907, the Board of Pardons denied the request, and a new hanging date would be set for December 3, 1907. Shortly after hearing the denial from the Board of Pardons, Curcio attempted suicide in his cell. He tried to stab himself with a makeshift pen. The injury was severe, but he would live. The date for his execution would be reset to January 23, 1908. After two years of trials and being jailed, Curcio is hanged. The gory event was covered in great detail in the newspaper. The hangman, James Van Hise of Newark NJ, who has 84 hangings to his credit, stated that the noose slipped and caused a slow, painful death to Curcio, some 26 minutes, instead of a quick death as intended. From the time of his arrest to the time of his ultimate hanging in January, Curcio gained 40 pounds in the Lackawanna County Jail. Farias himself was no stranger to violence. It was reported that he used to live in Bull's Head last year. When he was fired from his job at a paving contractor, he pulled a gun and fired several shots at the foreman. He ran away from the scene, left Bull's Head, and ended up in Carbondale, another Italian colony. There was much debate over the execution of any man. Some argued that no man should take the life of another man. Others argued that Curcio deserved death due to the cold-bloodedness of the murder, adding more bullets to a man pleading for his life while already suffering from one gun wound. The Scranton Truth had this to say. Greater than the lesson of Curcio's case is plain. It is that those who kill must forfeit their own lives to the law. This stern demand of justice must be satisfied, not for revenge, but for the protection of the community. Greater than greater than it will be well for all who harbor revengeful feelings and carry murderous weapons to take leave of their hatred, throw away their implements of death, and ponder over Curcio's plight before, like him, their sorrow comes too late. Greater than. Greater than the Scranton truth. Friend or foe? November 22, 1908. Four young men were returning to their boarding house at 1250 Blair Avenue shortly after midnight when they were ambushed as they entered their yard. It was reported that at least 15 shots were fired at the men. Giuseppe Pascuzzi, 18, was killed, and 22-year-old Gabriello Fiorello, a.k.a. Fiore, was seriously wounded. Two others were sparred injuries, including 22-year-old Tony Oram. Oram was found tucked under his covers in his bed by police, so frightened he couldn't speak. The men would not provide any information to the police, but witnesses said they saw at least four men running with a variety of weapons, including rifles. Police arrived quickly on the scene and detained Fiorello as he ran towards the officer, 
but there was no sighting of any of the other suspects. Later, police found a fully loaded .32 caliber Avair Johnson handgun near where Fiorello was detained by police. It's initially believed that Fiorello had just loaded the gun to prepare to retaliate even while seriously wounded, but was stopped as police detained him. It seems like this was the weapon of choice of many Italians at that time. The investigation changed everything. It was later determined that Fiorello and Pascuzzi were arguing as they arrived home after drinking all night. They argued over who was the better shot. Pascuzzi allegedly fired at Fiorello but missed. Then Pascuzzi's revolver misfired four more times, before Fiorello, fearing for his life, emptied his revolver into Pascuzzi. Fiorello would be sentenced to 10 years in Eastern Penitentiary for his crime, and he would be pardoned on September 23, 1918, after serving less than nine years. The beginning of a family feud. November 1, 1909. An argument leads to the shooting of Salvatore Paradiso, aka Salvatore Parenzo, at his home. Two men went to Paradiso's home and called him into the backyard. The three argued, and Paradiso was shot in the leg with damage to the hip and kneecap. Witnesses stated that one of the men, just before the shooting, tried to hit Paradiso with an axe. Police are looking for the shooter, Alfredo Casalnova, and another companion that swung the axe. Paradiso was living in the 1000 block of Clearview Street at the time, but he is known to move between Brooklyn and Scranton. His home on Clearview Street is said to be a roundup for Italians, and the police are not surprised at the trouble. The incident was rumored to be about rent that was due, but police believe that the tactics used were those of the Black Hand, the Italian mafia that would shake down people for money. Paradiso refuses to assist police in identifying the assailants even though Castelnova was named by someone else. Castelnova leaves the city and tries to lay low until Paradiso returns to New York. The other suspect was later identified as Antonio Costa, a brother-in-law of Castelnova. Castelnova is married to Costa's sister. Paradiso would spend two months in the hospital recovering from his injuries but would continue to walk with a limp. This incident would set up an ongoing feud between families. On one side, Costa and Castelnova, and on the other, Paradiso and Verano. Poco. September 4, 1910. Another incident included a Pascuzzi and a Fiore. While I can't tell if they are related to the others mentioned above, there's a good chance they are. A game of Poco turned serious. Several Italians were playing the drinking game on Albright Avenue when one of the players, Dominic Pascuzzi, felt slighted and attacked another player, Antonio Fiore. Fiore became the boss and allowed everyone to drink but Pascuzzi. Pascuzzi was supposedly already very drunk at the time. Both suffered knife wounds but would make a full recovery. Black Hand in Mayfield. October 3, 1910. Dominic Volpe, 46, of Diamond Avenue, staggers into the E.F. Edmonds Hotel in Mayfield, bleeding profusely from a gash across his face, from his ear to his mouth. The men inside gathered at tables, and the bar are stunned. He passed out on the floor before speaking a word. When he was revived, he told police he was visiting Dominic Cuda at his home in Mayfield, then left to return to Scranton. On his way home, he was jumped by seven men who robbed him of $77, a gold watch and chain, and a ring that was taken from his finger as he lay in the street. As he continued his story, Cuda entered the bar and whispered something into Volpe's ear. From then on, Volpe remained quiet. Police couldn't get any other information from him and believed that Cuda whispered a black hand warning to Volpe. Volpe would recover from his injuries, but it was expected that he would be disfigured for life. While I can't confirm it's the same person, another Dominic Volpe was arrested in 1902 for being involved with a burglary and carrying concealed weapons. He and an accomplice, John Leone, served time and paid fines. 
It should also be noted that Paradiso's wife was married to Akuta and her three children bear his surname. While I can't make the connection between the two Kuta families, it's likely they are related. Anthony Verano, second victim in feud. January 27, 1911. Antonio Verano of the 1300 block of Providence Road is shot and killed by Alfredo Casalnova near Tony Luzzi's store at 1344 Providence Road in Bull's Head. The two men were among others who were drinking and playing cards in Luzzi's store. The two got into an argument, and Verano slapped Casalnova in the face. The argument spilled into the streets when Casalnova pulled a pistol and shot at Verano as he was running away. The shot missed, but Verano fell to the ground and lay still. Kesselnova then approached Verano and fired three more shots into his back. Kesselnova threw the gun into the street and took off running. Kesselnova was on the run for several weeks before ultimately being picked up by railroad workers and returned to custody. Two other men were also charged with carrying concealed weapons for shooting during the incident and carrying stiletto knives Tony Asposito and Giuseppe Bonvenuto. The men were picked up in Pittston. They later testified that they were shooting at Kesselnova to get him to stop running away. Both men are tied to the Paradiso family. Kesselnova would plead guilty just before the case was handed over to the jury and accepted a plea deal for 5 to 20 years in Eastern. Bonvenuto would serve one year in jail. After the shooting, the Italians living in the area gathered to discuss the issue of guns and violence. The meeting was conducted by Reverend Ambrosini of the Italian Mission Chapel on Short Avenue. Reverend Ambrosini made an impassioned plea to stop the violence, stating that it's a bad stigma for all Italians and there are so many more law-abiding Italians in the city. Two others chimed in, including Frank Cimino, a local businessman, and A. Ganazzi. Costa jailed for weapons. January 31, 1911. Antonio Costa is arrested on charges of assault and battery, carrying a concealed weapon, and threats to kill in connection with a black hand operation. He allegedly approached a man and demanded money from his pay envelope while holding the man at gunpoint. The man refused, and Costa went on his way. Another Verano targeted, third victim of feud. August 13, 1911. Nicholas Verano, brother of Tony Verano, is shot in the back by three masked men while walking home and crossing the Albright Avenue Bridge. The men approached Verano, asked for change for $5, then opened fire on him, striking him in the back. Verano would make his way to his home, where a doctor was called to attend to him. He would go on to make a full recovery from the bullet wound that just missed his heart. Retaliation, fourth victim of feud. January 19, 1913. Pasquale Costa, 27, of Clearview Avenue and brother of Antonio Costa, is mortally wounded near Diamond Avenue and Wood Street in the city's Providence section. He suffered five stab wounds to his stomach. The alleged assailant, Giuseppe Joseph Bonvenuto of Clark's Alley, was the same man that was involved in the Tony Verano shooting two years prior. The men, along with six or seven others, left Tony Luzzi's store at about 8 p.m. The two men separated from the others before the argument escalated and Costa was gashed. Bonvenuto escaped before being captured. He was described as being about 26 years old, 5 apostrophe 6 tall, weighing 140 pounds, and missing his front teeth. Costa was in the hospital for several days before finally passing away. During his stay, officers tried repeatedly to get him to provide a statement about what led up to the stabbing and who the killer was, but he remained silent. Bonvenuto was indicted for the crime, but I can't find anything to support his capture and trial. During the indictment, one witness, described as a little olive-skinned man, said he saw Costa throw down his hat and money and dared Bonvenuto to touch it. He went on to say that Costa lashed out at Bonvenuto with a knife, then said Costa doubled himself up and maybe stabbed himself. A spectator at the inquest said, it must have been a case of suicide. 
Costa, unmarried, has previously served time in the county jail for carrying a concealed weapon. Due to the various spelling of Bonvenuto's last name, it's almost impossible to identify him in historical records. While there are similar Giuseppe Benvenuto's listed, it's not possible to confirm what happened to him. It was reported that his friends raised $125 for him the night of the murder to help him evade capture. It's believed he returned to Italy. Costa's name is mentioned in reports that local officials were trying to solve the problem of concealed weapons in the city. Discussions over the complexities that would conflict with the constitution seem to be ongoing. The current laws were not acting as a strong enough deterrent, as evidenced by both Costa and Bonvenuto, who were both previously charged with weapons violations. Another Costa dead, fifth victim. August 12, 1913. Salvatore Paradiso, back in the city supposedly looking for work, enters the Perry bottling plant on Philo Street. He walks past a couple of unsuspecting workers and approaches Antonio Costa, Pasquale's brother, from behind. One of the owners of the plant, Antonio Perry, sees the rage in Paradiso's eyes and tries to warn Costa, but it's too late. Paradiso's first shot misfires, but his second strikes Costa. Costa turns to see Paradiso and says, you got me, as he falls to the floor with blood pouring out of his severed artery. Paradiso escapes before he could be detained. After tracking Paradiso through the Pocono Mountains, it was believed that he was making his way back to NYC and preparing to go back to Italy. After six weeks of hunting, Paradiso is finally captured in NY and brought back to Scranton to face trial. At the same time, the gun debate continues. On December 6, 1913, Salvatore Paradiso is found guilty of first-degree murder. This is the first conviction since a new law was enacted that abolished the gallows. So what's his punishment now? The electric chair. Paradiso's lawyers, attorneys McGinley, Needle, and Walsh, appealed the verdict, and a new trial is set. After being postponed a couple of times, the date is set for May. During the wait for the second trial, Paradiso's wife gets deathly ill. Paradiso is granted a short pardon to visit her in the hospital along with his stepdaughter. Paradiso arrives just in time as his wife passes away shortly after his visit. The court, however, would not allow Paradiso to attend her funeral. Just before the second trial was about to start, Rose Costa, widow of Antonio and Angela Castelnova present a letter to one of the prosecutors. It contained a threat from Paradiso that he if went to Eastern State Penitentiary, he would kill Alfredo Castelnova. On appeal, and after a second trial, in May 1914, Paradiso's sentence is reduced, and his life is spared. Instead, he's sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. It was believed that Paradiso was seeking revenge, that Costa was involved in killing a relative of Paradiso a few years earlier. It was likely the Antonio Verano murder, but I can't find how Paradiso and Verano are related. On September 30, 1931, Salvatore Paradiso becomes a free man. After serving 17 years, he walks out of the Eastern State Penitentiary and talks about opening a shoe repair business, a trade he learned while in prison. After moving to Pittsburgh, he opened a shoe business and seemed to return to a normal life until his death in 1963. Attack on the Tracks April 16, 1914 Giuseppe Joe Mendicino, 20, is attacked along the Ontario and Western Tracks near Green Ridge while walking to work in the Green Ridge Mine. In what police believe is another black hand attack, a man approached Mendicino and gave him a hard luck story and asked for money. Mendicino told the man to follow him to his work, where he would get him a job. In a desolate part of the track, the man attacked Mendicino, slashing his face and narrowly missing his throat. Of course, Mendicino is tight-lipped and refuses to say anything about the attack, but police believe the suspect is Alfredo Marianino. Mendicino had received threatening letters in the past, 
demanding money, or he pay the price. He had also been involved in another stabbing incident at his home a year ago, and police believe it was another black hand incident. Mendicino would move to Philadelphia shortly after this incident and become a witness in the trial against Marianino. Bull's Head vs. Carbondale. October 18, 1914. Four men from Bull's Head visit Carbondale for a good time. Just before taking the streetcar back to Scranton, a friend invited them to go to a speakeasy, the Hotel Perry, owned by Philomena Perry on Hospital Street. It's believed that an argument started between the Carbondale-based Sicilians and the Calabrians of Bull's Head, as arguments between these two groups seem to happen frequently. Another rumor was that the men were attracted to Philomena's 17-year-old daughter, Angelina, and the locals took exception to it. During the fight, Tony Esposito, 31, a barber from Court Street in Bull's Head, was shot in the head. His companions also received various injuries. Another friend, Mike Della, didn't appear to be injured. On the other side, Philip Mateo, aka Philip Nero, suffered cuts on his face and back. His brother, James Mateo, aka James Nero, was shot through the left breast, and Salvatore Savino was cut over his right eye. Police arrested Savino at the scene, but two others escaped. About a month later, two men from McAlpine, NY, were brought back to Carbondale to face charges in the fight. Tony Savino, brother of Salvatore, and Matteo Savino, cousin of Tony and Salvatore. Matteo Savino was previously charged with murder two years ago but was never brought to trial due to a lack of evidence. This case would be no different. Even though the Nero brothers implicated Salvatore Savino as the shooter, they later changed their story. Police could not determine the sequence of events, nor could they determine the shooter. Even though the case went to the grand jury, charges were eventually dropped. On June 23, 1915, Tony Esposito dies seven months after being shot in the head. His death certificate indicates that it was a result of an accidental shooting by an unknown person. He carried the bullet in his brain for six months before having it removed about a month ago. Even though he knew the shooter, he never testified to hold him accountable. Black Hand Leader Exacts Revenge November 1, 1914. Rosario Cuda, 24, of Mayfield, is stabbed multiple times before being gunned down Sunday night near Diamond Avenue and Clearview St. Cuda was in town for a couple of days attending a political rally at Chicho Frank Greco's Italian Independent Club, a speakeasy on Wood Street on Saturday. Greco, 32, is said to be the leader of the Black Hand Society in the area and strikes fear into those around him. Greco and his friend, Antonio Marcuda, have disappeared since the evening of the shooting. A third man with them, George Mangano, was arrested within an hour. Oddly, Mangano testified on behalf of Paradiso, Cuda is a first cousin of Paradiso's stepchildren, in his murder trial. Cuda's mother believes her son was killed in retaliation for testifying at a trial against two other Italians several years ago. The two men, in that case, were sentenced to two-year jail terms and vowed revenge against Cuda. Another potential theory is that Cuda refused to testify at a hearing against Salvatore Paradiso. It's believed that Cuda is a first cousin to Paradiso's stepchildren. And yet a third theory was that Cuda was in town trying to collect black hand debts. One detective had this to say about that theory if there's any collecting to be done, in Bull's head, Frank will attend to it. Days later, Dominic Frumula of Providence Road told police that he was a witness to the shooting, and he saw Greco shoot Cuda. He said Greco, Marcato, and Mangano were all with Cuda. At one point, Mangano lunged at Cuda with a knife, and Cuda kicked it out of his hands. Cuda pulled out a small pocket knife and said, if you have revolvers throw them away, and we will fight fair, they continued to argue for another 10 minutes when Cuda turned and started to walk away. That's when Greco pulled his revolver and shot Cuda in the back. 
While it sounds legitimate, Frumula changed his story on several occasions. On November 7, police picked up Antonio Marcuda and brought him to police headquarters to interrogate him. After initially emphatically denying any involvement in the event or even being there at the time, he broke after intense questioning and corroborated the story that Frumula had told, that Greco was, in fact, the shooter. The city offered a $100 reward for the capture of Greco, but there was still no word of him. He left behind his wife and two small daughters on Church Street. After almost three weeks in hiding, Frank Greco surrenders and turns himself in. He had traveled to Sunbury immediately after the murder, then on to Pittsburgh before heading to New York City. He debated returning to war-torn Europe or back to Scranton to fight for his freedom. Greco told his story to a Scranton Truth reporter. He said that he and his friends were walking along Diamond Avenue when they came across a large group of men who were blocking the sidewalk. Kuda approached Greco and called him a wop. They had words, and Kuda pulled a knife. Greco said he kept backing up until he got to the bridge then he had no choice but to shoot. He then ran away, thinking the others in the group would shoot him. He acknowledged that he and Kuda were acquaintances and that they are from the same small town, Nicastro, in Italy. Greco claimed that Kuda was trouble. He said he shot a police officer six years in Mayfield and later stabbed another Italian. Greco wasn't wrong. While I couldn't corroborate his claims, Kuda was in trouble with the law years ago when he and a tavern owner tried to swindle an insurance company out of a $750 life insurance claim. The men took out the policy in the name of Kuda's brother-in-law, who was very ill. Kuda stood in for the man during the physical so he could pass the exam. The man died in Italy a few weeks later. The plan might have worked if not for the man being documented as being on a ship back to Italy when Kuda took the physical. The tavern owner was issued a fine, and Kuda received three months in jail, serving only two. Greco was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 9 to 12 years in Eastern State Penitentiary. After the conviction, a detective from Pittsburgh showed the judge a letter he had received from the mayor of Nicastro, Greco's hometown. The letter stated that Greco had 11 convictions, mostly for assault, while in Italy. He was sentenced to serve four years for being the head of the Camorra, the black hand equivalent in Italy. He was released on parole and fled to the U.S. The detective added that he also was trouble in Pittsburgh and told police that they believed he was the head of the black hand in Scranton. The judge went on to say that if the witnesses were honest, it would have been a conviction of first-degree murder. A widow escapes death. February 25, 1916. John Esposito, 22, I can't determine if he's related to Tony, is in critical condition following an attempted suicide stemming from an incident where he intended to kill Rose Costa, widow of Antonio Costa. Esposito was in love with a widow, but she did not accept his advances. He ambushed the woman as she was walking along Wood Street near Diamond Avenue in Bull's Head, firing five shots at her. After the third shot, the woman slipped on the ice and fell, rolling down the sidewalk. Esposito fled to his boarding house on Church Avenue, kissed a young three-year-old girl goodbye, then went to his room and put a .38 caliber bullet in his right ear. Esposito had lived in the area for the past six years and was friends with the Costa family for about 18 months before the shooting. Doctors were astounded that he lived for over two weeks with the bullet still lodged in his brain. He would pass away on March 9, 1916, leaving little family behind. More black hand at work. January 17, 1917. Samuel Bifano, 24, is ambushed and stabbed while walking to his home in the 700 block of Court St. Three men attack him and cut him with a razor. His face is slashed from his ear to his eye, and he has multiple other cuts on his face and hands. He's left unconscious. It's believed that revenge was the motive since Bifano was a complainant in a case against Joseph Mendicini and Gaetano Fiorello. 
Keselnova pays the price. March 7, 1917. Alfredo Keselnova, 31, is fatally stabbed in his home on the 500 block of Laurel Street. He suffered six stab wounds to vital organs. His wife fired two shots from a revolver, and the suspect fled. A neighbor girl told police she saw three men by the house that day when one confronted her and told her that if she said one word, she'd be shot. The young girl was so scared she ran into her aunt's house next door and fainted from fright. Keselnova was paroled just one year ago. It's believed that the killer was someone he met while he was on parole during the six months he lived in Philadelphia. This marks the fifth murder in this feud, along with at least four or five other serious shootings and or stabbings. Keselnova accounted for one of the murders with the shooting death of Tony Verano and two other shootings, but he had finally paid the price and joined two of his brothers-in-law in death. I could not find any records that show someone was held accountable for Castelnova's death, but it appears as though the violence between these two families had ended with this murder. The end of the Black Hand? I didn't need to stop here, but I chose to stop here. While the Black Hand Society's reign of terror decreased significantly starting in the 1920s, the violence in Italian communities continued for long after that. It wasn't just in Bull's Head, where Calabrian immigrants, specifically from the town of Nicastro, seemed to dominate, but throughout the valley. Many Italians had settled in communities such as Dunmore, Old Forge, and Pittston, and those communities had their own share of Black Hand and non-Black Hand violence. And the illegal activities weren't just small-time extortion of other immigrants that may have led to violence. In 1915, police uncovered a counterfeit operation that netted five men, one already mentioned above. The operation was based in Chinchilla, where the men would make half dollars and quarters. The men that were arrested here continued their life of crime, and at least two of the men were killed at the hands of attackers. To be clear, not all Italians were involved in the Black Hand. In fact, in 1903, a group of Italian residents in Mayfield created the St. Joseph's Protective Legion. This group was formed to combat the Black Hand in their town. And in 1904, Carbondale formed a similar group through Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. While the violence continued, it did start to fade away. Maybe it was the Italians finally assimilating to American life, or maybe it was the economic conditions that improved or that law enforcement pushed to quell the violence. Whatever the reasons, let's be thankful it's over and that the Italians have settled in and have become an important part of American culture. Epilogue Many of these families and their descendants mentioned in this article remain in the area to this day and may read these stories. Some may be aware of their ancestors' involvement in Black Hand and the associated violence. Others may be oblivious to their ancestors' sordid and or tragic past. As I always say when doing genealogy for people, your ancestors' history does not dictate your future. These stories aren't meant to open sore wounds or uncover hidden or buried secrets, nor are they meant to celebrate the events. The stories are a part of our past. They are what makes us who we are today. We can't change the events that occurred, but as humans, we learn from history and evolve. Even today, we're not perfect humans, but we work to get better every day. Who knows how history will look back at us 100 plus years from now. If you're interested in Scranton crime, check out my other postings on Thomas Atkinson, William Wright, and Gerald Donnerstock.